Pachango. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a totally spontaneous Roma. I came upstairs uh, to vacuum up a bunch of dead bugs from under our electric tennis racket bug killer and just spontaneously decided to press the button and start recording a Roma because honestly, I have to go pick Anya up in an hour and a half. Uh, that's not really enough time to get started on the project I was going to do. And I don't really know what to do. So I thought, fuck it, I'll just record a Roma. Why not? Let's do it. Let's just do it. Let's not think about it. Yeah. So here I am. Uh, I'm going to talk about a few things. I'm going to admit some things, some shameful things. Some things that might make you decide you don't like me anymore. But before I do that, I'm going to play a voice snippet that just came in this morning from Chicago. Hey, Chris and all the tangential ears out there. This is Ben from Brookfield, Illinois, for a jog in the rain. Tornado sirens just went off, but it doesn't look too bad. I guess I should just pick up my pace. Thanks. Bye. Jogging in tornadoes. There's something about that that feels either very right or very wrong. I'm not sure which. Before I go further, I'm going to take one post-it note off my computer, which says, mention fluid stance. I'm standing on a fluid stance thing right now a product i forget what it's called but it's a beautiful piece of technology it's i'm looking down at it it's a bamboo surface it's kind of like a surfboard like a short it's more like a snowboard i guess it's a it's it's a shoulder width and it's got a ball on the bottom and so you stand if you have a standing desk you stand on it and you sort of move around and they say it strengthens your core. I don't know if it strengthens my core. I don't know how to measure my core strength. And even if I did know, I probably wouldn't do it. Uh, just like I don't weigh myself. But I will say that it makes standing uh, at a, a desk the way I am right now more interesting because you're constantly kind of shifting your weight around. It works on your balance. Uh, I definitely think balance is an extremely important component of both mental and physical health. Um, finding the sweet spot where everything is quite literally in balance, right? It's a sort of physical analogy. It's, it's analogous to the sort of balance that we look for in our psychological and emotional lives. The sweet spot between excitement and boredom, uh, safety and being in a rut. Uh, well, I guess safety is being in a rut. So danger and being in a rut, danger and safety, let's say. Uh, routine and spontaneity, you know, pick any quality 
um, that you think makes your life better. And you probably realize that the opposite is also a, a valuable component of a good life. So it's not that we want excitement all the time, and it's not that we want peace and quiet all the time. It's that we want that sweet spot in between the two, and that can change as we age, as our circumstances um, change. So balance, I think, is very important. Uh, I have a friend, Lloyd Kahn, who's been on the podcast, who's in well into his 80s, I think. And he likes to go running with friends and ride bikes and stuff. And he says that um, he considers falling to be a really important component of what he's doing, of his exercise. Um, because he, he says that the danger of falling is not just that you fall and you scrape your leg or you, you know, twist your wrist or whatever. It's that you haven't fallen in years and you've forgotten how to fall and your bones have grown brittle and your, your joints have tightened up. And so when you do fall, it turns into a major problem because it's been so long since you've fallen. I think that's, very wise. I think he's right. I think we should constantly be falling a little bit. And I mean this metaphorically and literally. Um, so I'll fall a little bit. I'll fall on my sword. <clears throat> Some of the things I've been thinking about, a few things I want to talk about today. One is that I feel like I don't know if this is a historical shift or if this is a question of human nature coming up against novel situations created by technology and social media and all this. I'm not sure exactly how to frame this properly, but I feel like we're at a moment in history where we need to be very resistant and suspicious of our tribal instincts because more and more, I think um, people we agree with are saying stupid shit and people we don't necessarily want to be associated with are saying things that we would agree with if we listen to it. And that's a weird place to be, right? Because you want to be able to look around and say, these are my people I agree with them on most things. They agree with me on most things. That's my tribe. I'm safe with them. That's who I identify with. I dress like them. I listen to the same music as them. I listen to the same podcasts as them. I'm a tri tribalista or a tangentialista or whatever it is. We have this shared identity. We're safe within that. The problem is that something's happening in the world where... If you sign on to that way of thinking, you have to sacrifice more and more of your critical faculties and your authenticity because there seem to be so many issues that are changing so quickly, they're so fluid, that you need to be able to constantly be shifting the way I'm shifting right now on my fluid stance. See how I did that? <laughs> anyway, all right, before I go on, I'm going to finish with the fluid stance thing. 
They sent me this for free when I set up my new office here. And I appreciate it very much. And that's why I'm mentioning it. Uh, that was part of the deal. If they said, we'll send you this thing, you know, would you mind mentioning it? I said, of course not. If I like it, I'll mention it. I do like it. It's awesome. So if you have a standing desk and you want to sort of be on something and sort of move around and, and get that balance happening, check out Fluid Stance. Anyway, back to my point. Okay, I have said on this podcast before, and I have said in my life, uh, that I think Andrew Tate is a douchebag and uh, kind of a hateful guy. Somebody heard me say that, and they sent me an email, and they said, I respect your opinions on things. I love your podcast. If you have time and interest, I'd love to know what you think of this interview. And it was a link to a conversation between Andrew Tate and Piers Morgan, another guy I don't necessarily feel much affinity for. Anyway, I started watching and I thought I'll watch a couple of minutes and, you know, the guy will say something really stupid and then I'll, I'll be confirmed in my bias and that'll be that. So I started watching it and an hour and a half later, I was like, shit, this guy said a lot of things that make sense. I don't vibe with him at all. I think the whole look at me, how rich I am, how fucking cool I am, my cigars and my expensive cars and my castle and all that shit um, is bullshit, is silly, is immature. Um, but I do think that he said some things about the responsibility of men to man up, essentially. Um that I think made a lot of sense. It's like Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson annoys the fuck out of me. He just seems like such a whiny, bitter, angry guy. But probably 60% of the things he says, I agree with. Um, And so I think we're in this situation where we really need to look at arguments uh, separate from the person making the argument. And I know that's hard. And I know, as I said, I think that goes against human nature, which is extremely tribal. But I do think that it's increasingly important because we're finding more and more that when we stick with a certain tribal perspective, we're going to end up in a place that is not true to our individual experience. And I think that individual experience and that allegiance to our own authenticity is the only thing that can save us from doing truly horrible things as a group. Someone said, I forget who it was, Freud, or, or someone said, men go crazy in groups. They only get better one by one. Women included. We can lose our shit in groups. Mob mentality. Uh, mass hysteria. We're all subject to this. And we... 
we get some pleasure out of it when we all root for the same team and we all go to the game and we all scream and kill them. Ah! That's in us for sure. And yeah, it can be fun at a stadium to be among 100,000 people all screaming in joy when your team scores a goal or whatever it is. But we need to be extremely careful about that because that very quickly turns into kill the gays, kill the Jews, kill the Mexicans, kill the Chinese, burn the witch. And the only way to stop that is to be true to yourself. I wrote a a section in Civilized to Death about the famous Milgram studies. Um, If you know anything at all about psychology, you've heard about the Milgram studies. Uh, He was a psychology professor maybe in Wisconsin. I'm not sure exactly where he was teaching. Um, I know I'm, I'm getting him mixed up with Harry Harlow, who did the horrible monkey baby monkey studies um anyway milgram did these studies uh shortly after world war ii and what he wanted to understand was how easily people could be convinced to torture other people and so he had graduate students and, and university students come into, you know, they, they volunteered to take part in a psychology experiment. And so they came into this laboratory setting and there was someone sitting in a chair in the other room. You could see them through a window and they were attached. They had electrodes attached to them. And he said to the subject, well, the study is we want to like we're, we're measuring the um, effects of electric shock on these subjects. And so. Uh, I just want you to um, adjust this dial as I tell you. And so uh, he would say, okay, turn it up to one. And the person would turn the dial up to one and you'd see the person in the chair sort of jump a little bit. And then he'd say, okay, turn it up to two. And the person would jump more. And so clearly the subject, who is the person turning the dial, not the person in the chair, the person in the chair is acting. The person in the chair is not getting shocked at all, but they're pretending that they are actually hooked up to these electrodes that are controlled by the switch. And so the, the experiment is how high will this person turn up the dial? How much pain will they cause to this innocent person they've never met, but they can see through the window in that next room. And, you know, the, the professor's got his white, coat on and you know i don't know if he has stethoscope or what sort of symbols of authority um and they told the you know go ahead and turn it up okay turn it up more and oh no don't worry it's not causing any lasting damage go turn it up to seven now and you'd see the person like writhing in pain in the other room and what's been propagated through the culture is that people would turn it all the way up to 10 they didn't give a shit If they were told to, they would do what they were told. They'd turn it all the way up. And so this study, which is one of the most famous studies in all of psychology, has been spread through society as evidence that people are at heart horrible and willing to inflict incredible pain on one another uh, if they're told to. 
And it sort of feeds into this neo-Hobbesian view of humans as primitive chimpanzee-like monsters if the protection of civilization is taken away. Well, I looked into the study when I was researching Civilized to Death, and I found that someone, I forget her name, but it's in Civilized to Death, um, had gone back and found Milgram's laboratory notes in some library somewhere where they had been preserved after he died. And what, it was a woman, and what she found was that this study has been misrepresented for decades. That what actually happened was most of the people said, fuck no, I'm not turning this dial up. I'm not hurting this person. And the professor says, no, you know, you must. That's part of the, the laboratory study we're doing. It's very important you turn the dial up. And most of them said, fuck you. And they got up and they left. I'm not quoting directly, but paraphrasing. That wasn't included. Nobody talked about that. So the only things that he reported were the people who stayed and did it. And the people, when he would bring in 20 subjects and 18 of them would walk out and refuse to do it, he just didn't count that day. He didn't talk about that. So he only talked about the times when people would stay and do this. And so the study has been totally misrepresented because the control group, the... the the, the, you know, the, the times the drug didn't work, nobody talked about. So if you only talk about the subjects where the drug does work, it seems like your drug is really effective. And that's the way the research is still presented in pharmacology. They don't talk about studies where nothing happened. They don't talk about the patients who didn't feel anything and didn't get better. So the Milgram study has been totally misrepresented and what she found when she looked at the profiles of the people who did stay and did turn the dial was that these were the good students. These were the good people. These were the people who did what they were told. The obedient, unthinking, unquestioning, I'm just trying to please the professor types. Those are the types who become the prison guards in the prison camps, rounding up the Jews, rounding up the gypsies, rounding up the gays. Those are the ones who pull the switch. Those are the ones. It's not the psychopaths. It's not the crazy, freaky ones. It's the ones who have learned not to listen, not to honor their own authentic experience. And to just accept the received reality that their culture and their authority figures are feeding them. And so what I'm saying is we need to guard against that because the only thing standing in the way of that kind of mob, unthinking cruelty is your individual voice your individual authentic voice of truth and authenticity in your estimation, not as told to you by someone else, including me. And so that's why this thing, watching this thing with Andrew Tate was interesting because it's like, fuck, this guy annoys the shit out of me. 
And I know he said all sorts of dumb fucking stuff in the past, but the things that he's saying right here, right now, in this interview, I have to admit, make sense. I have to give him that because I'm not giving it to him. I'm giving it to myself. Even people we dislike can be right. Even people we love can be wrong. And we need to really keep that in mind. And I feel like that's going to get more and more important as time goes on. Because I feel like we're going into this very strange historical realm where the temptation is going to be stronger and stronger to just blindly agree with whatever you're told. Now, I know some of you out there might be saying, oh, yeah, sure. Easy for you to say, Chris, you, you're you the guy who said we should get a vaccine or I don't even know if I said you should get vaccines or, or we should wear a mask or this or that. Yeah, I said those things if I did. Again, I don't know if I don't think I ever recommended vaccines on the podcast, but I could be wrong. Um, because I'm not saying any particular position is right because some scientist said it or because some politician I agree with said it or because Anthony Fauci seems like a nice guy, reminds me of my grandfather or because, you know, Joe Rogan says it and Joe Rogan knows everything and Joe Rogan's a good guy. And so Joe says it, it must be true. Like I'm saying, let go of all that. And I know it leaves us in a really fucked up place because it leaves us saying, well, if I can't trust authority figures, then how do we know? <sighs> Good question. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I don't have time to go and like read the epi epidemiological studies. And even if I did, they're inconclusive too. So I don't know. Uh, RFK Jr. I listen to interviews with him and he says shit that it's like, fuck, that's true he's right about that and then he says shit where it's like you know wi-fi causes cancer well i don't know any studies that have demonstrated that i don't think there are any studies that have demonstrated that or you know vaccines cause autism and it, it all changed in 1989 so why did the diagnosis of autism skyrocket from 1989 on well how come he doesn't talk about the fact that the diagnostic criteria for autism changed in 1989 and that's one of the reasons that autism is much more diagnosed now than previously because the category itself the definition of what counts as autism changed and yet he says other things it's like fuck nobody else is saying that and that's true and i feel like that's the appeal of Trump in a way that Trump, I heard, I heard someone say this, who was, oh, it was an interview um, I listened to this morning with Obama and um, the Indian American comedian who was on the Daily Show. I forget his name, but it's a very good interview. And um, he said, the thing about Trump is Trump is factually lying, but emotionally true telling the truth and a lot of times the democrats seem to be factually telling the truth but emotionally lying i think that's a really interesting way to to look at things and i think people are responding to 
emotional truth, even when the factual shit isn't there. So when you see RFK Jr. saying, well, they deplatformed me uh, for questioning whether kids need, you know, 72 doses of vaccines now when it used to, you know, 30 years ago, it was seven or eight. Uh, they did. He's right. Now, that doesn't mean that vaccines cause autism. I don't know if vaccines have anything at all to do with autism. But the fact that they deplatformed him for saying, for suggesting that, for asking that question is true. So then the temptation is to believe the rest of the shit he says. But then he says shit that I, I know isn't true. So it's a la carte, right? It's, it's not, you can't order from the menu anymore. You can't, it's not a package deal anymore. It's like, you know, Trump said, oh, you know, fucking the, the people in the Congress and the Senate, they don't care about you. Well, he's right. They don't care about you. Neither does Trump. Right. But he told the truth, at least that they don't care about us. And that seems to be enough for some people. And I feel like RFK Jr. is carving out that same kind of um, niche where he says something that resonates so much with someone and no one else is saying it. And everyone else is so focus tested and pre-digested and fucking PR consultanted that that little bit of truth from him talking about his father being murdered, his uncle being murdered, like the shit that he's been through, just that authenticity is enough that people sign on for the whole package. And what I'm saying is, please don't sign on for any packages, not even my package. Which brings us to Jonah Hill. So the big news in the last week, and by big news, I mean thing that people were talking about on Twitter, not that had anything to do with, you know, the global temperatures increasing or ocean currents coming to a standstill or anything that's truly consequential, uh, consequential is that uh, Jonah Hill's ex-girlfriend uh, publicized some text messages that he had sent her a few years ago, I guess. They were together for about a year. Um, they split up uh, over a year ago. I, <laughs> I don't have all the details. I just read a couple articles about it, and I thought it was really interesting because the online argument appears to be uh, half the people are saying Jonah Hill is a controlling horrible shithead because he sent her some text messages uh, essentially saying she's a surfer, by the way, she's a pro surfer. And I guess he was uncomfortable at some of the photos she was posting online that he thought were kind of sexy, provocative. And some of her friends he wasn't super into. And he was like, oh, I'd rather if we didn't hang out with those friends for, you know, we, um, and there were references to her wild past and whatever. I read those and I saw, okay, here's a dude who's insecure. Uh, he's expressing his insecurities. He's expressing them in sort of a therapist jargon. Like he, he says, you know, these are my boundaries. And, you know, if you don't um, agree with these boundaries, I totally get that. And, uh, you know, I wish you the best. But in order to be with me, you know, I, I need you to, um, you know, sort of play ball with with the things that I'm feeling. And uh, 
So depending on where you are in your life and what kind of person you are, whatever, uh, apparently it's like a litmus test. Some people read this as Jonah Hill's a fucking asshole, abusive, emotionally abusive. You know, he met this woman. She's a surfer. Of course, she's going to have pictures of herself in bikinis. That's her work uniform. And then he tried to change her, tried to separate her from her friends and clearly he's emotionally abusive and uh fuck that guy and you know i even read there was an article in uh i think it was slate uh where um the the author referred to his texts as monstrous monstrous they're monstrous um and then other people look at it and said I don't see what y'all are getting so freaked out about. All he did was say, this makes me uncomfortable. And if we're going to be a couple, then, you know, we need to sort of agree uh, what we're going to be doing here. And also the guy's famous and he's got every right to be kind of freaked out about publicizing his private life. Uh, So, you know, what's the problem? And I I think it's a really interesting thing. And again, it's like, I don't give a shit about Jonah Hill one way or the other. I don't think he's a great actor. I don't really resonate with him. I mean, he was okay in Wolf of Wall Street, I guess. Um, But I feel for the guy, you know, he's a schluppy, overweight, you know, schlemiel kind of guy who became famous i don't i don't know if he i I don't know how he became famous i don't really know anything about him but the guy's got reason to be insecure and now add a bunch of money and a bunch of fame to that a bunch of attention he probably doesn't feel good about and um you know he's he's got some insecurities and those insecurities come out in emotional relationships And the woman had the absolute right to say no thanks and walk away at any time, which I guess eventually she did or he did. I don't don't know who broke up with whom. But the point is, how is it abuse? If there are two adults and one adult says, hey, I need this to be comfortable. And the other adult has the right to say no. How is that abuse? I don't get it. I feel like so many of these charges of abuse, which are meant to empower women, right? By saying no woman should have to put up with this bullshit from a guy. I agree. But when you call it abuse, you're infantilizing the woman because you're saying she somehow has no ability to say fuck it and walk away. And if that's not the definition of adult, what is? When you have the capacity to remove yourself from a situation that you find to be unacceptable. Right? Adult women have that capacity. Adult men have that capacity. So it just seems very strange to me when people say, well, Jonah Hill is emotionally abusing her. If she had said to him, uh, you know, I'm tired of hanging out with your famous friends. Could we just 
hang out with my not famous friends and, um, you know, not go to this premiere uh, that you need, you want to go to because your movie's coming out, but I'm really sick of all that Hollywood bullshit. Would that have been abuse? Because he could have just said, no, this is my job. Of course, I'm going to go to the party. I'm going to go to the premiere. If you don't want to go, don't go. Or you're not comfortable being in a relationship with me? Okay. That's not abuse. That's just life. So, there I am. I agree with Jonah Hill about that. I agree with Andrew Tate about a bunch of shit that he said to Piers Morgan. And, uh, oh God, what else? And I agree with Obama, a bunch of shit that he said to Haji Minaj or whatever his name is. Yeah. But the main thing I wanted to say was this fluid stance thing is awesome. And uh, I am getting my guitar in about two weeks. Uh, Taylor Guitars has let me know that it's being manufactured even as we speak. So that journey will begin sometime this summer, hopefully. And uh, it seems that the period of intense mosquito swarming may be over in Crestone. I don't know. All I know is for the first day in about a month, I went outside today and there was nothing buzzing in my ears and there were no mosquitoes landing on my arms. And I don't know what happened because yesterday it was just as intense as the Amazon jungle. And today somehow... I don't know where they went. Maybe they'll be back tomorrow. I'll keep you posted. Thank you, everybody, for your attention, for your love, for your like, for agreeing with me sometimes, disagreeing with me other times, keeping your shit real, off the rack, no package deals. Think about it. See how it feels. Try it on before you walk out of the store. Uh, This is one of the only truly funky songs I know that features didgeridoo and alto sax. The song is called Global House, and the artist is Oysten Savag, who I think is Finnish or Swedish, from somewhere up there. And... um, I don't really know much about him. I was in a Rand McNally shop in San Francisco on Market Street back in the 90s when I was working for Women in Community Service. And uh, actually, it was the day I went to see um, Galen Rowell, great photographer who was um, doing a book signing. I was at the Rand McNally waiting for that to start, and there was this funky music playing, and I went and asked somebody who worked there, and they they went and found the CD, and it was this CD, Global House by Oysten Savag, and I bought a few of his CDs, and uh, I dig it. Like, some of his music's pretty new-agey, kind of like you might hear in a Zen Center or something, Um, but he does get funky. And uh, this tune is definitely on the funky side of things. So Global House, Oyston Savag, thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the podcast. I'm going to go have a beer because my voice is getting weird. 
Love y'all. Ciao.